Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Priscillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, primarily Facebook and YouTube. Uh, like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell for notifications, do all that fun stuff. You can find us at the front line with Joe and Joe. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Professor Joshua Mitchell. And for those of you in the Veritas audience who do not know Professor Mitchell, I just want to briefly introduce him to you. Uh, he is a professor of political theory and chair of the government department at Georgetown University, where he also serves as associate dean of faculty affairs at the School of Foreign Service in Qatar. His research interests explore the relationship between political thought and theology in the West, publishing his work in journals such as Political Theory, Journal of Politics, Journal of Religion, and APSR. His writing has been included in various edited volumes, and his books include Not By Reason Alone, Religion, History, and Identity in Early Modern Political Thought, uh, Plato's Fable on the Mortal Condition of Shadowy Times, The Fragility of Freedom, Tocqueville on Religion, Democracy, and the American Future, and the book we're going to be discussing here today, American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Professor Joshua Mitchell, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you, Joe and Joe. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Uh, Professor, we always start with the prayer because all good things start with the prayer, and this is a good thing. In the name of the Indeed, Father, Son, Son, Holy Spirit, Spirit amen. amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, yeah, let's uh, let's jump right into it. Professor Mitchell, I guess a good place to start is to define our terms for our audience. Um, how do you define identity politics in this new book? So uh, identity is a word that's used a lot these days. People say, I have an American identity. I have a, this identity. I have a, that identity. You know, you and I, the three of us are old enough to remember the time when we just used to say, well, I'm an American. I'm an Italian American. I'm a Lebanese American, which is my case. Uh, but all of a sudden now we've got this word identity that's been thrown around. And one of the usages is fairly innocuous. It's, it just means I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. But that's not really what's going on with identity politics. Identity politics is new because what it does is it specifies a relationship between two different groups of people. And one group is what I call the prime transgressor, the one who's guilty of original and irredeemable sin. And all the other groups establish their innocence against the backdrop of this one prime transgressor. And for the moment, the prime transgressor is the white heterosexual male and women get innocence points because they're not him. Transgenders get innocent points because they're not him. Blacks get innocence points. You see how this goes. And there's a whole scorecard out there called intersectionality where you can basically establish how many innocence points you have vis-a-vis -vis the prime transgressor, the white heterosexual male. And and how it was interesting that I saw in the, you know, in, in my research for the book is how does identity politics seek to transform America by turning politics into a religious venue, in your words, a religious venue of sacrificial offering? What does that what does that mean? Well, so I, I want to talk in a couple of minutes about how identity politics is a profound distortion of the Christian understanding of Christ, who is the one sufficient scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. But normal politics is the politics of interests, where we, we figure out what we want, we, we argue about it, we pass laws, 
and, and we build the world together. That's what I call liberal politics in the good sense of the word. I know liberal is oftentimes seen as left, but I teach political theory. And long before the left took over the word, liberal meant building a world together. So that's normal politics. That's American politics. That's wonderful. And we should be proud of it. But that's not what's going on in politics today. What politics seems to be about now is, especially, the, well, in the Democratic Party, it's, this is what's happening, is where they're trying to figure out uh, who the prime transgressors are and all the sins that they have committed. And so if you look at every major action item of the Democratic Party, whether it's eliminating national boundaries or getting rid of fossil fuels or going to clean green energy or destroying capitalism, at root, what they're really saying is these are the things the prime, the prime transgressor, the white man, has produced. And so in order to purify the world, we have to purge the world of all the things that he made. And so that's not normal politics. This is an attempt basically to build a world, a pure world, without stain. And so you have to get rid of the stain. And the stain for the moment is the white heterosexual male. Believe me, this is no, I have no interest in defending uh, blood politics. I think it's really pernicious and ugly. But uh, my point here is that right now we've got one group, but once the white group, white men are purged, so to speak, from public view, then they're going to go after someone else. And I think the first group they're going to go after is, is white women. And then, interestingly enough, we can talk about why uh, it will be black heterosexual men who believe in the family and the church. I think they're the next ones on the chopping block. Josh, I want to ask you something because this is my view on it, and I've read about this myself. Do you think it's misdirected guilt, meaning like if, as a Catholic, I can't speak for every Catholic, but as a Catholic, when I do something wrong, I go to confession and I direct my guilt towards God. I am repentant and I'm forgiven. They don't have that that avenue. So they're basically projecting, I think, this. if, if I'm wrong, please tell me so, like on a group of people because they don't have a place to put their own guilt. What are yeah, your thoughts I think on that? No, I think that's absolutely right. I characterize it, as I said, as a, as a profound distortion of Christianity. The Christian insight, uh, and, and Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox differ on this to some extent, but we all agree that man was sufficiently broken that God had to send himself to be the savior. So that's what we understand. And what that, why that is so radically important is that because in the pagan world, what you did was when you felt some sort of internal guilt, you really believed that the solution was to go out and purge another group. And so you had these incredible violent battles. They were called, you know, battles, uh, battles between the gods, but it was just this cathartic rage vented at other groups. And the radical thing about Christianity is it says the source of your guilt isn't some other person. It's in you. And, and, and therefore, the, the church, Christ and the, the church, which is its visurgent here on earth, are the venues through which your, your guilt is addressed and, and more importantly, through which you have uh, atonement, repentance and forgiveness. And so what we have with identity politics is the, the guilt of Christianity, the belief in irredeemable stain that's there in Christianity, but without the God who forgives and I mean, the fantastic formula, formulation that Christianity has is there's a divine scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. And it was one sufficient sacrifice, which put an, put an end to the need for sacrifice for the rest of time. But when Christianity starts to dissipate, or when the churches get soft, and here I would blame both the Protestant and the Catholic churches, and you lose sight of this insight, what happens is a whole group of people who ought to be addressing the problem of guilt in the churches, uh, what they do is they find it in some other place. And my argument is it's been in part the softening of the churches that has led a whole generation of people to try to solve the problem or address the problem of guilt and innocence through identity politics. And right. I think only the churches can fix this problem. It's only when the churches get back to the robustness of their message that there's one sufficient sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world that we can look at all this stuff and say, this is madness. This is a deep deformation of Christianity. I think you hit it right on the head that only the churches can solve this. Joe and I on our show, we get involved in a lot of cultural conversation. However, I do sincerely believe it's a spiritual battle. And I believe that all I, I could again, I could only speak for the Catholics because I'm Catholic, but but at the same time, Protestants could become holy 
to a degree as well. I mean, you know, they don't have the fullness of the truth, but they do pray to the God that we pray to. It's through holiness and prayer. We have to show an example to the world, in my view, that the joy of Christ is real and that the peace of Christ is real. And maybe then people will take note and see the the light on the hill. Benedict XVI notes that in, in a 1969 address saying that civilization will start to decline and that the church will shrink. But when it shrinks, it will become purer and the light that it shines will be noticed by those that live in darkness. What are your thoughts to that as a spiritual solution? I, I completely agree. I teach political theory and I've done it for 30 years and I've studied it for 40. But uh, in all the authors that I study, what I'm most fascinated by is the, is the deep realization that political problems aren't resolvable by politics. They always point to some deeper problem in the soul or some deeper problem of understanding that, that unless we resolve, there's no no Democrat or no Republican is going to fix this problem. And what, what saddens me is the churches who have this treasure have, have buried it. They've, they've buried it. They've covered it over. And, and you've got people now in the churches who don't know the treasure that they have. It's very interesting if you look at Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Uh, the Western Europeans who have really abandoned the Christianity have this profound guilt. And the way the left is playing this in Europe is they're saying uh, you have guilt for uh, for colonialism, for two world wars, and for the Holocaust, and Christianity can't save you. And so what the left is saying is, come unto me, renounce your nations, and, uh, and, and you will be absolved of your guilt. And I've literally heard French and German, very smart people say exactly this. The only way we can renounce our guilt or, or move beyond our guilt is to give up on the nations entirely. That's the European Union project right now. In Eastern Europe, in Hungary and Poland and places where the Roman Catholic Church is strong, their response to this attempt to dismantle the nation because of guilt is to say, no, we know where guilt is to be addressed. It's to be addressed in the churches. And so they, they, are, self, they are very at ease with loving their nation. So you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello on the Veritas Catholic Network. And we are having a great conversation with Professor Joshua Mitchell. Uh, Professor Mitchell, uh, you by the way, I want to say that I think you've been watching The Frontline with Joe and Joe. <laughs> because You say the same thing you do. One thing that you said. <laughs> you just say I, it better. <laughs> I, you say it a lot better. One thing I will say that we say all the time, and I'm glad you said it, we must, must, must emphasize to people that we cannot look we cannot look for political solutions to problems which are not political. They're moral and spiritual. But I want yes. to move on real quick. You said in the book, America has always been committed to the idea that citizens can work together to build a common world. That's the America that Joe and I recognize, Professor Mitchell. That's the, um, the America that you grew up in. I was never taught that I have everything in common with every other American. I was never taught that. I was an Italian-American, Roman Catholic. I'm a man. But it didn't matter. I went to a regional high school. I met all sorts of different people. I went to college, met all sorts of different people, went in the workforce. We had something in common. Nobody looked to just blame everybody else for, for their own problems. And quite frankly, that, that's an America that we miss. But let me, let me move on real quick. Uh, you described in the book identity politics as the first of three afflictions from pursuing that noble ideal. You write, the second affliction is that citizens oscillate back and forth in bipolar fashion, at one moment feeling invincible on their social media platforms, and the next feeling impotent to face the everyday problems of life without guidance of experts and global managers. Man, there's a lot there. Please elaborate on that for us, Professor. Well, after I finished writing the identity politics section of the book, which is really the first third, I thought to myself, well, even if this were to go away, there are some major problems we have to face if we're going to get back to the America that, that is strong and vibrant and we're all proud of. Uh, so the, the second problem, as I said, is what, what we call bipolarity. And I have the audacity 
to strip it from the medical professionals. Because if you look at the, the history of Western political thought, there has long been an understanding that the human soul without guidance is pretty unstable. The, the first place I see this is actually in Augustine's Confessions, where, where he oscillates back and forth between kind of a manic, manic throwing himself into the world and then, and then depression and despair and withdrawal. And his answer to this is, is the following. He says, there is no rest until I rest in thee. And so I've, I've seen in the history of political thought a deep understanding of this instability, this what we call bipolarity or manic depression. It's not a medical problem. It's much deeper than a medical problem. It's ultimately a theological problem. But in the hands of Tocqueville, who is, who is this person I've really studied for the last 40 years, Electics Tocqueville, who wrote Democracy in America, which every family should own. It's a wonderful book. But what he says um, toward the end of the book uh, is, is the following. He says, I foresee a time when Americans will come to see themselves as greater than kings and less than men. Both. So we'll have this very inflated idea of ourselves, and this is what I call selfie man or Facebook man, where we can uh, we can declare who we are, and anybody who challenges us, we defriend, and so we're sovereigns. We're we're greater than kings. And then on the other hand, uh, the the paradox here is that so many people who are on Facebook will say, well. I'm just impotent. I can't solve any of these problems. We can't solve any of these problems at the national level. So whatever you might think of Trump, he pulls out of the Paris Peace Accords and, and the half the younger generation moans and wails and says, well, our planet is doomed. Why? Why? Only, we can only solve problems through global management. Is that the case, really? Now, Tocqueville asked the question, why does this happen? Why do we get this bipolarity? And his answer was this. He said, look, when you start breaking the links between people, and they become lonely and isolated, two things happen at the same time. On the one hand, because they don't, because they're not bound by anybody, they begin to think of themselves as absolutely sovereign. This is selfie man. You've got people who have no friends, but have a thousand internet friends. We can talk about Facebook later on. Uh, and so the more and more we become disconnected, uh, we can feel ourselves to be invincible because nobody can tell us what to do. On the other hand, the more and more we feel disconnected, the more and more we feel impotent. And so the solution to this problem, which Tocqueville saw in the 1830s, is we have to focus on what he calls the mediating institutions, all the things that stand between the lonely individual and the big, powerful state. And those necessarily include the family, the churches, our local civic associations, probably local politics, all these occasions when we can be drawn out of ourselves. And so unless we're able to uh, find ways to rebuild local communities and our mediating institutions, we can expect increasing uh, numbers of people who are diagnosed with bipolarity and manic depression. It is not by accident that America has the highest uh, prescription drug use in the world. And Tocqueville predicted in 1835, he said, madness will become the dominant condition in America because you'll have all these lonely, isolated individuals. So we have to rebuild the world together or else we get bipolarity. I think I think madness is uh, I, I, it always reminds me of the, 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 the movie Bridge on the River Kwai. The last line of the movie as there's all sorts of chaos and havoc going on. And the character looks and he just says, madness. And it's, I'm always reminded of that because that's exactly what we're living through right now. So go ahead, Joe. No, I, I think like you touched upon the family and I think that's the key to it all. I, you know, uh, some of these answers I find are, are very simplistic. I mean, like the family used to be something, even if you were a poor family and you lived in, you know, a place that no one really looked at, you know, these are people that were stable. They had happiness and joy and but nowadays the family is falling apart and there's so many things that are contributing to that. I mean, we could talk about no fault divorce. We could talk about the contraceptive mentality, abortion, abortion. Um, and these are, are basically root causes of families just falling apart. And this is the rich and the poor, the, the, you know, the sophisticated and the simple. Could you talk about the cotter pin of it all, which is the family? How do we strive? strengthen it? Well, I think, uh, you know, so I, as I said, I teach Tocqueville and uh, I'm always using him as a barometer to figure out where my students are. And I've done this, as I said, for 30 years or so. And so my question to my students is always this, are you your own? Are you able to do just what you want? And, and one of the things that uh, Tocqueville 
talks a great deal about in Democracy in America is generation, is that we, we're not our own. We're part of a long chain. And if we start seeing ourselves as individuals who are, to come back to the words I used a few minutes ago, delinked, isolated, and alone, with no connections either to people or to the past or the present, you can see how we very quickly get to this place where we are now, where it's difficult to argue against the right to choose uh, you know, in all of its various manifestations. And my sense of this is we're not going to solve this. I mean, there's, a, there's obviously the theological address uh, point that we have to address too, but, but even sociological, if we, come, if we continue to believe that we are our own, to do as, as we choose with our, our bodies and our children uh, in our own lives, then we're in a serious, we're a serious quandary, which we can't escape. And it will only be when we start to realize that we're not our own, that, that the way we should act is with a view to what our great grandparents would say and what our great grandchildren will say. And I say this to my grad, my uh, Georgetown students every Thursday, Friday night when they're going out, I say, okay, so are you going to act with a view to the impulses of the moment? Or are you going to act with a view to what your great grandchildren will say and what your great grandparents would have said? This is important. We have to get, we have to rekindle an understanding that we're part of an intergenerational covenant. This is Edmund Burke course. And until we get that back, there's, there's no possible way we're going to fix the family. And, you know, and with respect to women, just very quickly, no, please. You know, women, you know, choice is a wonderful thing. And I don't mean this in the, in the political sense. I mean, yes, human beings have free will, but we're also bound by our, our embodied form. And with respect to women, that, that does mean bearing children. And we have to presume that God had a, a plan in mind here and that we're part of the long chain of generations and he wants us to be faithful. And I think what I see in my young people uh, is a belief that they have, they can do whatever they want with their bodies. This is, I think, the transgender movement, which we can talk about if you want. Uh, this is the great fallacy of our times is that we're disembodied creatures, but we're not. We're thrown into our bodies. We're thrown into the world, and we have to live faithfully with all the limits that that imposes. Let, let's let's stay there for one second. Um, Professor Joshua Mitchell's joining the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, um, and we are we are discussing his book, American Awakening: Identity Politics and Other Afflictions on Our Time. Let's stay there. You mentioned embodied. You also mentioned transgenderism. So let's let's talk and let's try to explain to people that what's going on now is not a it's not a new idea. These are not like progressives always try to tell us, uh, oh, these are new ideas. We have to get rid of the old ideas. Gnosticism is a very old idea. Do you see this when you talk about, let's say, this assault on nature itself? Women who want to kill their children instead of uh, bring their children into the world. Uh, men who want, who think that they could change the women and vice versa. Is this what you would describe as a neo-Gnosticism? And if so, w- describe that for our audience. Hello? Yes, we're here. Sorry, sorry. I, I got part of it. My, my, my Bluetooth disconnected. But I have enough of it to, to speak to this issue, I think. Um, so, uh, Augustine is always my guide here, and he distinguishes uh, in the city of God between the city of man and the city of God. And he, he sees exactly what we're going to do. He sees that in the city of man, we believe we're our own masters and we can do anything we want with the, with the created world. And he sees this as the great pathology. And, and he's saying the only way we can possibly be happy is if we're oriented by the city of God, which is a living in, a, in the created order uh, with stewardship, with understanding the, the, the boundaries within which we're, we're to live. I think part of the reason why, uh, let me just speak to the transgender movement just for a second, if I may. Sure. So imagine this, imagine you're a young boy uh, who has been taught that uh, right from the very beginning, that, that to be a male is dirty, to be a male is sinful and stained. It will occur to you that you want to find some kind of cover. This is cancel culture, by the way. Some kind of cover uh, that that allows you not to be indicted on the charge of being filthy. And there are Catholic high schools across America right now, today, where young boys and girls are walking through the halls and saying, well, on a scale of one to six, 
in terms of maleness, I'm a three today or I'm a four. Because to be a six, to think of yourself as a male, that's a sin. I mean, these boys have been told right from the beginning that that is a sin. And so you can imagine a whole generation of young boys desperately searching for cover and looking for ways to escape the form into which they've been born, which is indicted and for which there is no redemption. If you are a white male, there is no redemption for you. I have two sons. I have seen this happen. Uh, and, and fortunately, they, they blow this off. They, they're fed up with being told that they're irredeemable sinners. But you can imagine that, uh, that you can see embodied form itself, ultimately, this is transhumanism, as a kind of stain and blot. And that's ultimately where this is going. It, transgenderism is just the first step in moving to transhumanism. And the, the dream there is that we can leave embodied forms altogether uh, aside and upload our consciousness into some artificial intelligence machine. This is the end of humanity itself. And I think what Christianity teaches us, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares, which I keep coming back to. You know, the, the servant plants the weeds, the weeds grow, he goes to the master and says, shall I pull them up? And he says, no, they, they, will, they are intertwined until the end of time and then there's the harvest. And so we're not going to have a pure world. We live in embodied forms. Uh, there, there's beautiful aspects of this and very frustrating aspects about this. I don't know if you all have read Pascal, but he has this beautiful understanding of the, the human longing for immortality. He says, alone among cre- human created creatures, man has an immense longing to exist, an immense disgust with existence, a longing to exist because he knows his soul is immortal, disgust with his existence because his body fails. But, but we're supposed to live faithfully in those bodies until the end, awaiting the resurrection. But you could imagine a time in a post-Christian era where people say, well, I'm not going to wait. I'm, I'm going to move away from my disgusting embodied form, and I'm going to upload my consciousness, or I'm going to deny the gendered aspect of the, the sexed aspect of the world that, that the world has created in, with male and female forms. Uh, you can imagine how this would happen. So all this, I think, is a consequence of the Christian message being completely lost. Instead of waiting for the resurrected body and going through all the frailties of old age uh, and, and losing your beauty and your health and not being able to you know, go outside and chop wood, it's relevant for me because I live on a farm, uh, you, know, you see these things happening and you know, what's your response to it? One is to try to live forever and get rid of embodied form and the other is to wait in steadfast patience knowing that the resurrected body is what you're really looking for. Yeah. I mean, talk about like, you know, denying nature, this idea. And it is a, there are people in the world who, who believe that, that, you know, we, we have the technology where people can live forever. It's, it's an amazing thing. We have about two minutes before the break and then Joe's going to get into some more uh, red meat. You're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello with Professor Joshua Mitchell. In two minutes up, Professor Mitchell, just very quickly, let's um, sum up uh, some of what we talked about in the first segment. We talked about the first two afflictions. Talk about the third one, which is this, this, uh, this need to find cheap shortcuts, like, what are some of those shortcuts uh, that people um, look to to get over, let's say, the, the if you want to call it the hardship of everyday life? We have about two minutes before the break. Okay, so maybe we can talk a bit about after, but let me just give you some examples, okay, which I think are all related. Uh, fast food is a shortcut for the real meal. Uh, drug addiction is a shortcut for a full life. Facebook is a shortcut for friendships. Online shopping is the shortcut for, uh, for the connoisseurship of, of shopping. Uh, anyway, I go, the list goes on and on and on. And what I'm saying is this is the third grade problem that we face here. We are all looking for cheap shortcuts. Life is really hard. Doing, it is discovering what friendship is, learning how to make a meal. These things are connoisseurships and arts, and, and we should devote our lives to them. But we're all in such a tremendous hurry that we're looking for cheap shortcuts, and it's catching up to us. It's so important. I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we got to that question uh, before the break. It's so important that people realize that we're losing the beauty in the simplest things, like you said, about just cooking a meal. 
and having a meal with a family. Uh, that's just a beautiful example of, of something that we've lost that we need to regain and many other things. Yes. We're going to leave. We're going to leave it there for one second. Professor Joshua Mitchell is joining the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app and where you find Joe and I on social media, Facebook, YouTube, and the like. Uh, please subscribe, share, hit that little bell, do all that fun stuff. This is a fascinating conversation. So stick around. We'll talk to you on the other side of the break. From all of eternity, God desired that you exist. He wanted to make you in his own image and likeness, a unique and unrepeatable reflection of his eternal glory. There is nobody like you, and there never has nor ever will be anyone like you. Your worth doesn't come from what you can do, produce, or achieve. Jesus loves you for you. You are very good. You matter. No matter what has happened to us in life, no matter what we've done or haven't done, Jesus is waiting for us with his infinite mercy to heal us, to restore us, and to speak to us the truth of who we are. Take time to be in silence today, to re-encounter his love for you and the truth of your own goodness. Give God permission. This is Sister Marie Veritas with the Sisters of Life for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are way, way, way in the breach on the um, on the Veritas Catholic Network, thirteen fifty on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you get access to all of our station's content. And we are having a fascinating conversation with Professor Joshua Mitchell from Georgetown University, and he has written a new book, American Awakening: Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our time. That's the book we're discussing. And it's so important because all these words and phrases get thrown around. Uh, and a lot of times we have an idea of what they mean. Well, Professor Mitchell has written a book, so he tells us exactly what is going on. He lays it out for us. With that, I'm handing it over to Joe Resinello. Professor, you were talking about shortcuts. It's funny because um, I have four young children and my daughter, Teresa, uh, when I drive her to school, I always tell her there are no shortcuts, Teresa. There are no shortcuts. And she laughs like, you know, if we're driving somewhere, go, daddy, go down this road. There are no shortcuts, Teresa. <laughs> um, I learned that from my family. To be honest with you, my dad, I come from very simple stock. My father was a barber, first generation Italian. My grandfather came here at 16 from Southern Italy, did not speak the language, worked in a factory in Newark, raised his family. I learned that through my parents. My father would always say to me, Joe, straight ahead, straight ahead, a very simple man. And I learned that that way. You are teaching some very sophisticated people. I mean, uh, Georgetown is one of the most prestigious schools in America. And frankly, some of these people come from very, very sophisticated families um, from all over the world. To me, that message was simple to digest because I seen it lived and I understood it because that's how my father was. How do you communicate that to people whose lives were completely the opposite of what I knew? So, first of all, I want to uh, <laughs> I want to echo what you said. So, my my father's family grew up in Worcester. His father came over in the eighteen nineties. Twelve kids, and I remember showing up in the sixties and seventies, you know, with all sorts of fancy ideas. And I remember my aunts and uncles saying to me exactly what your father was saying. You know, there are no shortcuts. There's, life is hard work, and you can't find a cheap runaround. So that's the first thing. So, all right, so how's life working with, with all these cheap shortcuts? So instead of making a meal, you go to your favorite restaurant. You, you dream of driverless cars. You have Facebook friends. You do online shopping. And on the one hand, it's very much like a drug addiction. And I use the drug addiction analogy. You, there's a high associated with it. You don't have to do the hard work of making a meal. You don't have to do the hard work of, of making friends. There is definitely a high. But as in drug addiction, there's also a low. And so my question to these to young people 
and my question sometimes to myself when I'm when I when I can see myself, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to make a meal. I'm in a hurry. I'll, I'll just stop and get something. And my question to myself and to other people is, how is this working for you? If you look at the whole, if you don't look at the high, but look at the high and the low. Uh, what you will discover is there's something seriously wrong. The analogy I use in the book is meal and vitamins. So the, the meal is the real thing, and you can have vitamins as a supplement. Uh, now, that's great. It will strengthen you if you have the supplement to the meal. But the problem is the problem arises when we turn the supplement into a substitute. When we start thinking, well, that meal, that's really hard. Why don't I just take, you know, eat protein powder and take vitamin pills? That is really tempting because you can save time. Uh, you don't have the hassle. You don't have the cleanup. And, and this is what we're all doing. We're looking for a no hassle, no cleanup life. But, but anyone who has done that experiment, I used to be a weightlifter for time and, and I succumbed to it. I, I tried, you know, living on supplements for a few days and I realized, no, there is no cheap shortcut here. But so what we have to do is we have to ask people, you know, how is this working for you? You're getting the opioid high, but there's this tremendous emptiness that you're feeling inside. If we just ask them about the high, they're going to say, well, this is great. I'm going to keep shopping on Amazon and having Facebook friends. Look, the really hard work uh, is, is only by doing the really hard work that we can avoid this high and low. This is back to bipolar, by the way, and, and manic depression. Avoid this high and low. And so friendship, for example, it takes work. And, and you can use Facebook and social media as an extension, as a supplement to the hard work of friendship. But you can't use it as a substitute. And that's my fears. We have a generation using it as a substitute. Online shopping as a supplement to the art of shopping in your local towns, that's fine as a supplement. But we've turned Amazon into a substitute, which is why it's the biggest company in the world right now. Everywhere we look, we're turning supplements into substitutes. And this is a, a profound pathology I would even press this fiat currency as a supplement to gold money, but when it becomes a substitute, then you get the crazy spending that we have. National government is a supplement to our mediating institutions. If for some reason things are really going wrong in the community, the national government perhaps has to step in. But as a supplement to it, it doesn't replace the local community. It's just the great crisis in the black community. We can talk about that if you'd like. Uh, even think about uh, globalism. You can have treaties between nations which are supplements to national national life but you can't have internationalism you can't have globalism as a substitute for the nation everywhere we look from the smallest places to the largest places we're practicing what i call substitutism and the only way we're going to resolve this problem is if we take a good hard look at the highs and lows that these things are producing uh, and, and decide we have to come back to the meal. Here's one last one. Mercy is a supplement to justice, not a substitute for it. Think about the border crisis, right? The people on the left want to say, no, no, we have to be merciful. They're, they're not illegal immigrants. They're dreamers. Everybody, we have to be merciful and open the borders. No. We have to have borders, and then we can be merciful as a supplement, too. We can let people in, and that's our act of mercy. But it's, it's with respect to the borders that we can be merciful. Mercy can be a supplement to justice, but not a substitute for it. But the left is practicing mercy substitutism, if you want, which is why they want to destroy the borders. These are deep conceptual problems, but they're all attempts to find shortcuts to the hard work of life. You know, you know uh, Professor, when you were saying that, talking about the highs and lows experienced by these individuals. You see, I actually think that they recognize the lows, um, but they can't confront them. They can't face that reality. So they dig down deeper. Um, That's exactly I, right. I think of St. Francis. He's a guide for me in life. And he looked at the cross of St. Damiano and he said, who are you, Lord, and who am I? And he understood who he was. At the root of many of our problems, I don't think we understand who we are. So we're reaching and trying to be something we're not. And we're reaching at nothing. 
nothing. And it's destroying us. It's destroying us. We go into debt. We try to create these, these images of ourselves on social media that are completely ridiculous and completely false because the reality of who we are disturbs us. And it's, it's an identity crisis of who we really are. And we are children of God. And I, I, I'm convinced of this when I look at reformers in the church, Catherine of Siena, Francis, the answer to this is holiness. And you alluded to it on the other side of the break. The churches must be strengthened through authentic Truth and what real quick, but one of the way one of the things we have to do, Professor, is that you know we're so used to now defending positions like like I have to defend the idea that I don't want a boy going into my daughter's locker room. Okay, I have to defend right. the idea that you can't kill babies in the womb. We need to be asserting, particularly Catholic truth. See, we have to go on the offensive. We need to tell the world, no, 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 I'm not defending anything. You need to defend your indefensible positions. And it seems like there's a lack of willingness to do that. I mean, there's guys like you, there's guys like Joe and Joe, there's a lot of us out there. But we need a more, we need a stronger voice, particularly coming from the American Catholic Church, to say, no, we are reasserting Catholic truth, which is universal truth. And that'd be, that'd be very good to help to raise the consciousness of, of, the, uh, of the citizens of the United States. But let me ask you this, uh, Professor uh, just to, again, getting back to defining some terms, you did say, because uh, R.R. Reno, the editor of First Things, he said, Joshua Mitchell exposes the spiritual disorders that are paralyzing public life. Um, and ersatz politics of innocence has replaced our liberal politics of competence. Describe that difference, if you would, Professor Mitchell, for our audience, the difference between the the ersatz uh, uh, politics of innocence and liberal politics of competence. So uh, in the whole in the book, I set up what I call the liberal politics of competence. Again, liberal does not mean left, but let's just talk about the politics of competence. What what I'm trying to get at there is what Americans have long known, and all of us who come from immigrants, immigrant families know, which is we have to build a world together. We have to demonstrate our competence, and and that means working with people who are, you know, to Joe's earlier observation, working with people who are different from us, but there's some common goal here. We're going to build a world together. And yeah, we, we're, we're all sorts of different people. That's true. But we can do this because the, the task here is not to call out this or that identity as pure or innocent, but the task is to, is to bring together all these wonderful people uh, and, and build this world that none of us can dream through stewardship and hard work. That is the America I love and the America I think you guys love as well. Um, the, the problem is that uh, instead of that, and, and Rusty wrote, was very gracious in writing that, I mean, Rusty's right. Instead, we're looking for a cheap substitute for this, which is, well, let's not build a world together because after all, the global managers are going to be the ones who do that. We don't do anything anymore. Our task is simply to figure out who the guilty ones are and who the innocent ones are. And so instead of coming to some coming to work and saying, okay, let's build a world together with identity politics, you come to work and you say, well, I'm a this and, and I'm not going to do anything with you unless you respect quote my identity. You can't build a world on this stuff. First of all, we don't really know who we are. We discover who we are through the long labors of life in our families, in our churches. I mean, we're all three of us are old enough to know that we had very naive views of who we are and who the church was and what our family was and what was important about family when we were young. And, and, and perhaps we had the right ideas, but they get deepened our understanding of the importance of those things get deepened with age. And the this ersatz politics of innocence wants no deepening. It simply wants to sit there. And here we're back to the selfie man and the self-satisfaction of, of, of Facebook, simply to declare who I am. And we don't know who we are. We only discover this through building a world together. So I think the liberal politics or the politics of competence is what we need to do. Look, we have a pluralistic country. I love pluralism. I think America is a fantastic place. It allowed my Lebanese grandfather, allowed my, my Dutch grandfather, uh, you know, a century before that to come to America and, and to build a world. And we have to go back to this uh, in order uh, to, to survive. But let me come back to the churches for a second. 
I think one of the things that churches need to do is to think very carefully and, and lay out that identity politics or make very clear is very thin rule version of Christianity. Because what identity politics at least gets right is that there's, there's sin and transgression and innocence. That's the name of the game. Here I, I will applaud identity politics. I think conservatives have not been paying attention to this, this need in the soul to figure out innocence and transgression. I believe the churches have the answer to this question. And my worry is that as the churches have gone soft, and again, this is all of them in America in the last, I don't know, half century since the 60s, they've lost sight of their message that they have a way to answer the deepest longings of the human soul. And when we lose that, then people are going to go look for it elsewhere, and they're going to find really cheap, inferior versions. And so I look at these identity identitarians. And, and on the one hand, I'm a bit angry about it. On the other hand, I see a profound longing that is not being addressed adequately by the churches. And I say to them, you're feasting on crumbs. Come to the meal. Mm. I Absolutely. agree with you 100%. And I'll tell you, I think at the root of that is I think we as Americans have become too comfortable. You talk about your family, 12 siblings, that is a school in and of itself. That's politically incorrect. I nowadays. mean, like, like I, my great grandmother had 17 children, five died. They raised 12. They lived in tenements in Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. That is a yeah. school. And from that, you become formed. This is what's lacking. And I'll tell you, you look at Catholicism, say, in places like Africa. I've also traveled through India. And you see the families who practice their faith completely different from Americans. And I think at the root of it, it's a lack of faith in God. God will provide your family, 12 kids. A man and a woman who goes into such a venture trusts God implicitly. And, and the church must trust God, not mammon, not the society. God will provide because he loves us. And you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello. We are way in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial. And we are talking to Professor Joshua Mitchell about his recent book, American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. You know, in the book, uh, Professor, you say this. Uh, basically that the future of American uh, democratic and social political life is at stake. Do you think that like the state of politics could basically continue? I don't think it can. I mean, where's it going to go? Well, um, I agree. And I, I live in, I work in Washington. I live on the Eastern shore, but my life has revolved very much around politics and political thought for a long time. But uh, I really, uh, I conclude that there's no political party that's going to fix us. I mean, we can have our arguments about, you know, at the moment, which political parties might be most helpful, but we need to have a complete, um, a complete turnaround. And if I may just pick up what you said a minute ago about trust, I mean, this is really the great question, because if you don't have trust in God, then you're going to get really scared and you're trying to control the world. And this is the dream that somehow through our computers, we can, we can track everything. We can make predictions through, uh, through with big data. Uh, there's this dream out there that somehow we don't have to trust in God that we can control everything. And I think this is going to burst because God is more mysterious than, than we know. That his plans vastly exceed our attempts to render the world as a coherent whole. And so this, this giant attempt to build Babel, which is what we're really doing with, with globalism, is going to crash. I don't know when it's going to crash. I don't know exactly why it's going to crash. Uh, I think it has going to have something to do with the collapsing of the, of the financial order. Uh, not absolutely certain, but that's my intimation at this point. But that is the great question. Are we going to trust that God will provide, or are we going to try to desperately control the world? And that is what we're trying to do at the moment. Right, right. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that about the Tower of Babel because the, ask Nimrod how that worked out for him. Uh, yeah. So Professor Mitchell, uh, um, this is an interesting question I thought of because we try to hammer this home on the show all the time at the front line with Joe and Joe. Um, amongst these wokesters, not all people in the favored groups are treated equally. So I'll give an example. 
Clarence Thomas is not treated with the same respect as John Lewis, or Hillary Clinton is revered and Sarah Palin is destroyed. Uh, don't say a negative word about Dan Savage, the homosexual activist, but Andy Nago, who's a conservative homosexual, can literally get the crap beat, beaten out of him by Antifa. So obviously, to be a protected member of the group, you have to conform to the ideology of the left, um, or else you're not welcome. Please uh, expand on that for our audience. So the, the whole of identity politics hangs together on, on one hypothesis, and that is that groups, group identities are unities. So that to be white is to be only one thing. To be black is to be only one thing. To be, pick your favorite group is to be only one thing. And if you don't fit in with that particular understanding, you are literally invisible. Clarence Thomas is not a black man. Uh, you can think of uh, Martina Navratilova now that she's come out, a feminist who's now come out against the, the transgender idea that sex is, is fluid. It, she is no longer even visible. You, you, there are whole groups of invisible people. And I think one of the ways in which we fight back against this is that we stop thinking of ourselves in terms of these racial identities. So, for example, Nowadays, and we, the three of us know this because we come from very specific backgrounds, I don't think white describes anything about me. If, if, if you want to talk with me, I'll, I will say national origin. So Lebanese American, that, now you can get a hint about what that means. Italian American, now we can get a hint. So I am actually no longer, and I would urge everyone who's listening, do not check the box white. Put other, put, put your national origin. That's what we used to do, by the way. It used to be national origin on the census, and there's a huge battle over the census because the census, those, it, it, it's the government, the left-wing government, forcing you into these identitarian categories, and I just refuse to play with this game anymore. So a group, the whole of identity politics requires that groups be one. And so this talk about diversity is an absolute lie because what they really mean by diversity is they, want, they don't want just blacks. No, you've got to be black who believes in identity politics. A black conservative does not fit with diversity at all. So we have to call out diversity as a gigantic lie. It's a political program having nothing to do with the pluralism that this country thrives on. I, I, I can't believe how much you're echoing what we say on the show. And, and, and just to give you an example, we've said all the time when they lump us into a group, like I don't know what a white guy is. I agree with you. And I'm not just saying that. I don't know what a white guy is. No, it's because we, we, Joe and I describe ourselves, our identity is uh, Roman Catholic American men of Italian descent. That yeah. is an, that, that description is, is, is not detached from reality because right. that's what we are. A, a, I happen to have white skin, but that's not my identity. And we have to emphasize to people is don't let them put you into a group. See, once yeah. they put you into a group and say, white guys, well, what does that mean? I mean, I told Joe, and I've used the example all the time. I've been down to Virginia to visit my uh, my wife's nephew. You go into a Catholic church there. The entire church is black. Everybody in the church is black. Okay, so who do I have more in common with? The folks there in that in that in that Roman Catholic diocese, uh, that Roman Catholic parish of African American men and women, or a group of uh, Southern Baptist white guys down in Texas? Of course, my people are the people in Virginia, are are yep. the Roman Catholics. So right. we, we, it's very important that we emphasize to everybody listening to our voice at the front line with Joe and Joe having this conversation with Professor Joshua Mitchell. Don't let them put you into the groups that they want to put you into. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. Uh, Professor, uh, Antonio Gramsci talks about the long march through the institutions. He spoke about that about 100 years ago. Obviously, this just didn't happen overnight. I mean, I'm 50 years old. I could remember um, many, you know, steps along the way. It just seems recently it's accelerated. Um, I can't even believe where we, we've arrived at. Could you speak a little bit about that march, things that were basically happening, say, in the last 50 years that kind of brought us to this point? Uh, which kind of speaks to what Gramsci had to say. Well, so let's talk about this, because one of the things I'm saying to my conservative friends is that, that I think it's, I think we have to let go of the claim that this is cultural Marxism. And, and I think we have to recognize that we have to realize that the Gramscian claim isn't the one that's going to be helpful now. Let me explain. So why didn't Marxism 
take over in America. It didn't take over because the the basic category of Marxism, which is property, it just it wasn't going to resonate because we are a nation of small class middle class property holders, and so Marxism was never going to make sense. That's why there had to be the long slow march through the institutions and it's taken a very very long time to radicalize these institutions but here's what's different and this is why i think we have to not think about this as cultural marxism anymore identity politics as it's not the long slow march it is in the last two years this has happened so fast think about major league baseball moving the 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 uh, the all-star game Think about woke corporations doing all sorts of things. This is not the long, slow march through institutions. And let me explain why. Marxism couldn't make sense in America because class and property were not, were, the European understandings of class and property were not ours. And so it was foreign. But here's why identity politics is marching through rapidly. And this is, this is not Marxism. It's because the, the central category of the Christian nation is going to be gailed. And what the left has discovered is that they don't have to talk about Marxism anymore. They don't have to have the long march through institutions. All they have to do is raise the question of guilt. And every corporation in America, every town in America, every K through 12 school system in America will jump on board the, the 1619 curriculum, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory. They will invite it in. That's what's happened. This is not the resistance of America against Marxism. This is American guilt, Christian guilt being used by the left to destroy America. And that's why only to come back to a theme that we've touched on now two or three times. That's why only the churches can save us because the churches are the only ones that have the answer to the problem of guilt. And if you do not have a Christian answer to the problem of guilt, then we will undo everything. The families will be seen as, as patriarchal and guilty of stain. Our nation, because of slavery, will be dismantled. We're already ripping apart all the monuments. Everything will be destroyed. And I'm telling conservatives, we have to put down the Marxism and the Gramsci references. We have to understand this is entirely new. Marx couldn't work because property made sense in America. This will work. This left or left leftward movement will work because they finally figured out that America's great wound is guilt. And, and it should be because we're Christians. That's, we know that. But if we don't know how to, what to do with our guilt, then the left will use it to destroy us. Yeah. So, I, Professor, just real quick, we only have about three minutes left, uh, Professor, and I want to just leave a little time for you to maybe give a final thought and where people could buy your book. But with that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe. How do we how do we basically strengthen our churches? I mean, we all have our ideas. We've we basically talked about that. That is the solution that the church has been weakened, clearly. And I actually think it's diabolical. The devil is so smart and cunning um, and, and the church has been weakened. It's been it's almost impotent. It no longer has a, an authoritarian voice, not even amongst Catholics. Talk about how we could strengthen the church. I think that's the root like answer to it all. Well, so here I think identity politics is, is helpful because you can ask the question, how does identity politics answer guilt? And then you would go to your church and say, well, why is ours a better answer? What is our answer? Because the churches haven't been addressing that for a very, very long time. What is our answer to the problem of guilt and why is it better? That is the conversation we all have to have. Lay people and, and leaders of the church, why is our answer better than identity politics? And until we're, I think identity politics will allow us to focus on that question because that's the question we have to answer. That's how we strengthen our churches. And, uh, and Professor, if you would, um Give our audience any final thoughts um, on this topic, which quite frankly, Professor Mitchell, we could go on for hours. This is right up our alley at the front line with Joe and Joe. Uh, you're listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Network. Any final thoughts? And then also please add at the end where people could find our audience could find you uh, and where they could buy your books. We have about a minute. Well, uh, reject group identities. Uh, 
call out identity politics as cheap Christianity. And then I think it's important we do the actual work of building a world together, which we are able to do in our local neighborhoods. It's just when we get to national politics where we get to this craziness about group identifications. So forget the national as far as we can and focus on the local where we know that we were Italian Americans, Lebanese Americans, and we can work together nevertheless. With respect to the book, I mean, I hate to say it, you can get it on Amazon. It's published by Encounter Books. And so I guess my recommendation would be to go there uh, to get it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, do you have any social media where people can follow you or no? You know, I actually don't. Uh, I, I can be reached by email. Uh, I, I have, uh, I'd much rather not do social media and do the hard work of, uh, of trying to build friendships and local life. That's why I've moved out of Washington. I live in a small community and I'm very happy there. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and we're going to have you back, Professor Mitchell, hopefully over the short term, because we, we probably want to talk about and get into a little deeper conversation about the need for, I think you would agree, we need to apply the good old fashioned Catholic principle of subsidiarity in America. Oh, yes. Otherwise oh, known as federalism. Start asserting absolutely. local and state rights. Yep. I want to thank you so much, Professor Joshua Mitchell, because this conversation was fascinating, informative. We know our audience is going to love it. So thank you for joining us on the show. And thank you, dear brothers and sisters, for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network, bringing the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area at 1350 on your AM dial. For all Veritas content, please be sure to download our Veritas Catholic Network mobile app and please follow Joe and Joe Joe primarily on Facebook and YouTube for now until they shut us down. Uh, At the front line with Joe and Joe, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff, hit the little bell. And remember until next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.